How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 160 of X-Lapsed, where we're dipping our toes back into the uh, King in Black crossover event. The, uh, you know, the latest in Marvel series of um, alien invasion stories that we can't seem to get away from, no matter how hard we try, and no matter how little we care. But uh, let's get into it here. We got King in Black Marauders number one. This had an April 2021 cover date. Stories called Queen in Red. Written by Jerry Duggan with art by Luke Ross. Colors, Carlos Lopez, letters, VCs, Corey Petit, designs, Tom Muller, head of X is Hickman. Edits, Bisa White Sabolsky, cover price $5, of course. And this one went on sale February 3rd of 2021. So, uh, yeah, a Marauders one-shot for the King in Black event. Um... Why this couldn't have just been Marauders number 18? Well, uh, I suppose Marvel realized that people simply following the King in Black event and minis may not have picked this one up. So, uh, here we are. Now we open during the King in Black event, during a time when it would appear as though Earth has fallen to the invading baddies, which is basically the middle section of every Marvel event for the past two decades or so. We can see here that both the Storm Who Laughs and the Cyclops Who Laughs have been uh, venomized, which I'm going to assume happened at some point during the main King in Black event miniseries, and we'll be talking more about this tandem when we cover a pair of issues of Savage Avengers not too long from now. Now, we also get the quick and dirty on Eddie, Eddie Brock being dead, which... I don't know about you guys, really makes me miss the time, like around the turn of the century, when we, as comics readers, all thought we were, like, way too cool and way too sophisticated to give a rat's ass about Venom. I don't usually miss that aspect of the uh, turn of the century, but uh, now I kind of do. Now, we join Kitty and the crew as they're headed into New York to pull a smash and grab. You see, they get in. They grab Scott and Aurora, who are near the top of the Empire State Building at the moment, and then they get the heck out. Pyro and Iceman will pull off a distraction. Kitty and Bishop will do the thing. Before they can, however, they receive a distress call from a passing boat, the Rambling Bird. Now, it's worth noting that, uh, just like in all the King and Black stories, uh, there are a whole bunch of goopy symbiote dragons flying overhead. I think we'll probably wind up calling a lot of these King and Black crossovers uh, maybe like Dragon Sky crossovers? Kind of like, you know, the Red Sky crossovers from Crisis when, like, the the only bit that connects the story to the actual event is the fact that the sky was red. Here, the skies have dragons in it. 
Uh, who am I kidding? Uh, nobody's ever going to talk about King and Black again after it wraps up. Um, hell, I'm pretty sure at this point I'm the only idiot still referencing Empire, and that ended only a few months ago. Anywho, these dragons are attacking the rambling bird, and so Kitty and the crew decide to lend a hand before sailing into Manhattan. But first, the double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. They were going to be focusing on Bishop. Call Me Kate, Pyro, Iceman, Sage, Emma Frost, Magneto, Beast, Lockheed, and Callisto. Now back to comics, and our heroes are fighting off the symbiote dragons. Bobby makes an ice ramp to pull off the rescue of the Rambling Bird crew. After loading all the crewmen onto the Marauder, Kitty asks about their cargo. We learn that it's just olive oil, which the captain of the ship, a rapidly sinking ship, quickly dismisses as nothing that can't be grown again. Just then, Bishop hears a faint tapping. Three quick taps, three long taps, and then three more quick taps. Huh. He decides to board the sinking ship to check it out. What he finds down below in the hold are, well, not bottles or crates of olive oil, but people. Olive oil is made of people. No, no, um, uh, the rambling captain is just a big fat liar. He's not, uh, he's not shipping oils, he's actually a human trafficker. Bishop calls up to the Marauders, and Bobby stabilizes the ship before it can sink with an instant iceberg. Kitty sends Lockheed into the sky to hold off the symbiote dragons while she attends to the business at hand, which includes backhanding the lying captain of the Ramblin' Bird. He claims to have been ignorant of his cargo. They don't tell him nothing. But come on, ain't nobody gonna buy that. Now, while Lockheed is attacking the dragons, as Pyro puts it, like a chihuahua at a dog park, which I can attest to owning a couple of chihuahuas, uh, one of whom only weighs four pounds, boy, howdy, do they enjoy attacking things far bigger than them. Um, Now, Kitty tells Iceman to escort the traffickers back onto their sinking ship, and the captain cries out that, well, that would be a death sentence. To which it's like, yeah, no, duh. Iceman then tells them that mutants don't believe in the death sentence. Huh, I wonder if they ever put that to a vote. Uh, Maybe he's speaking like, you know, the royal we here, you know. This is uh, the current stance of Krakoa, the government. Which, I mean, their actual stance is far more cruel than just killing people. Uh, They'll just stick them in a hole with Sabretooth where they'll just wait forever. It's kind of like the Phantom Zone over at DC, which is most definitely a fate worse than death. Just... Being there, (laughs) unable to escape, unable to do much of anything for eternity. Anywho, Iceman escorts the baddies through a Krakoan gateway. Remember, humans can pass through so long as they're invited. Uh, Kitty rolls her eyes that she still can't use the gates, but these pieces of human garbage can. Bobby walks them in, checks with Sage for the absolute worst exit point, and then deposits these geeks in the middle of the Namib Desert about a day's walk from the nearest bit of civilization. Now, lucky for these guys, that Earth's symbiote shell is obscuring the sun, so uh, at least they won't be exposed to that. The captain asks for water, which, I mean, is he really expecting any mercy here? Or was just just a semi-organic way of setting up Bobby to drop a bunch of ice cubes for these goofballs to suck on, because uh, that's exactly what happens. And it's a cute bit, but maybe a little bit forced, a little bit telegraphed. Uh, Back to the boat. Kitty informs the rescued folks that they're going to drop them off in New Jersey. If you remember, they're still en route to New York to save Storm and Cyclops. 
The rescuees are not wanting to go to New Jersey, which, yeah, I, I totally get that. Kitty's all, oh, come on, at least it's not Florida, which I guess is a joke. I don't know, I remember, I, I grew up in New York, and everybody wanted to go to Florida. Um, uh, you know, Florida was the destination vacation spot. Uh, then again, maybe everybody did go to Florida, and that's why it's the butt of so many jokes on the internet now. It's uh, almost as ubiquitous as calling people, like uh, calling women Karen, which is also not all that funny. Um, I don't know. Anyway. The hostages, they don't want to go to Jersey They want to go to Canada That's where they paid these traffickers to take them Before they were, you know, taken hostage And they're actually kind of demanding about it You know, I mean, the marauders just saved these people from drowning and Maybe kind of a teeny tiny break here um, Kitty decides to call into Emma to see what their options are Hey, I got an idea I mean, this might be, call me crazy But maybe have Bobby escort the hostages through a gateway to Krakoa then out another gateway into Canada where they want to go. No? That, that, that won't work? I don't know. Let's make this far more complicated than it needs to be here. Kitty tells Emma that she promised the hostages amnesty. So they were pardoned for being taken hostage? Does she mean that she promised them sanctuary? I, I don't know. Anyway, Emma reminds Kitty that her objective here was to rescue Scott... Uh, and and Aurora, of course um, Magneto enters the quiet council room And asks to be brought up to speed on things It would seem as though Kitty is asking for permission To let these hostages stay on Krakoa Uh, why? Uh, whatever the case, it's just not possible I mean, just ask the poor juggernaut about that Emma claims to have a plan Which she tells Kitty about, but not us We'll find out soon enough, though Whatever it is, though, Kitty sure seems to like the sound of it. It's worth noting that for the duration of this conversation, the Marauders have been fighting off those swirling dragons. We cut over to Pyro, who approaches Bishop. He notices that Bishop is still quite keen on getting to New York, and he wonders if this has, might have anything to do with a secret meeting he may have had with Beast. How Pyro would know about that? Your guess is as good as mine. But it does facilitate a trip into flashback land where Bishop is told by Beast that should he not be able to rescue Cyclops and Storm to, you know, kill them. Which would, you know, matter if not for the resurrection protocols being a thing. Unless there's a, like an, a certain otherworldly wrinkle attached to being killed while infected with a symbiote. I don't know. Bishop denies everything. He just tells Pyro he's being a paranoid dude. We jump ahead to the Marauder docking at Island M. You know, Magneto's old place here, where this is where the uh, hostages will be kept safe until the symbiote invasion ends. Because uh, here there be no dragons? Eh? The hostages are welcomed to the island by Callisto, and then they're sheltered by some quick-growing Krakoan foliage and granary. We jump ahead again to the end of the issue here. Now, the woman who used Morse code back on the boat, Nyoka, is skipping stones. I guess she's kind of the de facto leader of the, uh, the hostage crew here. She's approached by Magneto, who tells her that this safe haven comes with only one string attached. Now, once this crisis passes, he would like for her to tell the story of the mercy they were shown from Krakoa. And that's it. Next episode, we are going a little bit off the beaten path and talking about an issue of Runaways. 
but uh let's uh let's talk about uh let's talk about the the KIB cash in here for a minute um i want to say right off the bat i can tell there was a lot of effort taken here to make this story feel both consequential and enjoyable for both the event looky-loos as well as the loyal marauders readership and for that i i commend jerry duggan um, it's not often that a creator will try to try to appease both sides because I mean there are two sides to this. So there's three sides to someone who would buy this. You have the the completionist for Marauders. You have the completionist for King and Black. Then you have the people who are gonna just throw it into a uh, a slab and expect to uh, put their children through college with it. But uh, the first two you can control, sorta, right? I mean, we can't control the marketplace, no matter what the uh, the apps tell us. But I think this did a decent enough job at keeping King and Black readers, the looky loos, um, satisfied, while also moving the Marauder story forward a little bit. Um, I mean, we get Bishop being sort of a double agent for Beast, which we know as readers of Marauders. Don't know that that'll be so much appreciated or understood by the more casual looky-loo Marvel fans. Then again, like the skatey eighth death of Eddie Brock isn't likely to do a whole heck of a lot for the X-Fans. I know it really doesn't do a whole heck of a lot for me. But really, what do we got here? Um, kind of a... kind of a distraction, right? Um, kind of a half-pregnant sort of a tie-in here. Uh, I mentioned the Red Sky tie-ins from Crisis on Infinite Earths where... Um, creators really couldn't find a way to organically make the crisis story fit into their ongoing um, title and so they just made it so the sky was red so it was like hey yeah this is happening at the same time here we have you know a sky full of dragons and our characters do interact with the dragons here but I feel like it's almost a little bit of a bait and switch here we got the um Dark Knight's metal uh, versions of Storm and Cyclops. I mean, come on. <laughs> they look just like the the Batman who laughs, right? Uh, I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but they look very, very much like the Batman who laughs. So we get the idea that the Marauders are going to rescue them, but they don't. They get uh, circumvented here, and they got to deal with this uh, this passing ship. So it started out, I, you know, I really thought that we were going to deal with actual King and Black stuff here. But no, this is all on the, uh, on the outskirts of it. This is just existing in the world that's affected by King and Black. Which, hey, I'll hand it to them, outside a sword. I don't think we're getting that in any of the X-Books at this point. So, hey, I guess that's something. It's the token, you know, X-Men appearance or a token X-Men tie-in. I'm just happy it's a single issue and not a full-blown miniseries like we uh, see from a lot of the titles getting tied into it here. But what we have is a hostage situation, a uh, you know human trafficking deal here, and it's pretty cut and dry. You know the uh, the good guys save the hostages; they send the bad guys off into the desert to fend for themselves. I don't know if there are dragons in the desert. Maybe there are. Maybe there aren't. I really don't think it matters. But really, not a whole heck of a lot to say. Um, I'm not sure where the hostages needed to be physically taken to Island M, rather than just using the gateways. Um, and, you know, why not just take them to Canada like they requested? Which, you know, let's talk about that for a moment. 
The marauders saved their lives, and they're being awfully demanding here. What, what a bunch of ingrates, right? I, I don't know. It felt almost like aggressive. It's like, no, no, you're not taking us there. You're taking us here. It's like, excuse us? <laughs> we kind of just saved your lives. Oh, boy. Um, weird stuff. Very weird stuff here. Uh, the art. I liked it. It wasn't up to our usual Mateo Lali standards, but it was good stuff. Uh, of note, Kitty did not have any knuckle tats, and that's just fine by me. Um, I guess overall, uh, not a whole lot to say about this one. This was the the Red Sky crossover with a you know symbiote dragon instead of redness. Didn't really feel necessary, but I mean, at the end of the day, Marvel got uh, an extra five dollars out of me, and I'm pretty sure that is all they're worried about. So. Good on you, Marvel. You won. So uh, those are my thoughts on this King in Black tie-in. We will be covering a few more King in Black tie-ins as we move forward here. We have a couple issues of Sword, and as mentioned, there are a couple issues of Savage Avengers, which I believe the Cyclops Who Laughs and the Storm Who Laughs are the prime antagonists in that book. So, Or among the prime antagonists in that book. Hopefully they don't just appear. Hopefully they actually do something, but... We'll have to wait until we get there to find out. Now, before we go, let's hop into the mailbag here. It's going to be a short session in the mailbag here. We've got a message from Damien. He's talking about, hey, Marauders number 17. He says, I'm sure it'll come as no surprise to you that I adored Marauders number 17. I've mentioned before that my first issue of Uncanny was, was number 211, back during the Mutant Massacre, but it was the following issue that made me love the X-Men. If you check out your Overstreet, Uncanny 212 is known for the first meeting between Wolverine and Sabretooth, but what hooked me was the Storm storyline. We see Storm want to give up her role as team leader as she believes it's her fault that so many people have been injured. She's lost her powers and thinks that, thinks that this made her too weak to lead the X-Men. She runs away and is followed by Kalisto, who makes her come back to face her responsibilities. This remains one of my favorite comics of all time, and this issue hits all the same notes as that one. The central question of the necessity of powers remains, as does the meaning of friendship. Callisto feels she needs her powers back, but will only go through the crucible with someone that she trusts. I really got the parallels with Storm's life-death era running through this issue. It had to be Storm, as she will definitely be able to kill her. I could see a powerless Callisto defeating many powerful characters just as Storm defeated Cyclops back in Uncanny 201. I disregard the attempted retcon in Inferno. I'm pretty sure she could defeat Fenris also without her powers. Oh man, that retcon, that felt very, very unnecessary. Um, if I'm remembering it right, I believe it was Madeline Pryor kind of like sabotaging Cyclops to get him to uh, to face his you know month-long retirement. Um, so it was more about... Madeline getting under Scott's into Scott's head rather than Storm actually managing to uh, to pull off a victory here, and I agree with uh, Damien here. I I disregard that uh, retcon as well. I am not a fan of that. I think it's much more powerful uh, just having Storm you know win. It makes it makes everybody look better. You know, even though Cyclops lost here, I feel like there was a maturation of his character there where he had to accept that. You know, maybe this, uh, his, maybe his time was, was up, at least for the moment, you know, for the big month that he was actually off the board here. And I totally agree here. Um, we've talked a lot about uh, Jerry Duggan really um, 
paying tribute to everything that happened before and somehow somehow walking that fine line between nostalgia and progression you know this isn't just the uh, the member berries as as I've heard people call them you know this isn't just fan service this is stuff that it's referenced to but not in a way where it insists upon the reference it's there if you get it if you don't get it if you're a new fan or a newer fan you're not missing much because the story itself is so is still so solid so for folks like us who've been through you know the life the life and times of storm and callisto we can appreciate the callback but also see that it's building to something else it's building off of the past to progress this story and this relationship and it's uh it's just spectacularly done uh, Damien continues, I'm sure it's no accident that Mask, Silver Samurai, and Fenris were chosen, all linked specifically to that life-death storyline. Mask was there to witness the first battle between Storm and Kalisto. Silver Samurai was involved in the story that led to Storm's new look, and being shot by Fenris led to the events of Life Death 2. They could have chosen anyone from the island to be present, but they chose them. And I tell you what, I totally missed the uh, significance of that, and I'm so happy that you brought it up here, because... Really, I mean, I could just repeat what I just said. Um, it, this is, as I mentioned, you know, you don't have to get the references and you can still enjoy it for what it is. Right here, this this reference, despite the fact that I read these stories, went right over my head. I didn't put two and two together, but I can still appreciate it. You were able to put all these pieces together and you appreciated it even more. I mean, that's the way these stories should be told. Absolutely. Damien continues. The actual scene in the Crucible is so well done. They've fought before, but always with Storm not using her powers, either as a matter of honor or because they were gone. Storm has all she needs. In their first fight, Storm stabbed Kalisto in the heart, but this time she takes Kalisto's heart in her hand and kills her quietly. The disappointment on the faces of Fenris that this was a gentle death makes it feel like Storm has defeated them again. Excellent point. Excellent point. And... Something, you know, another connection that I missed out on here, despite the fact that, I mean, I, I believe I just referenced, I think I actually referenced the battle between Storm and Marrow when we talked about uh, this issue of Marauders. I, I called back to that one because that had Storm actually ripping, I mean, this was the 90s version of, uh, of the event, right? 80s, the 80s version, Kalisto gets stabbed in the heart. The 2020 version, Kalisto, you know, is basically shocked her heart was shocked. The 1990s, though, we ripped the heart out of the body. <laughs> and that's what Storm did with Marrow. And uh, despite the fact that I linked that to it, I, I totally missed the uh, significance of the original fight there. And yes, a very, very good scene. I still, I still feel weird that Storm killed somebody. I still have trouble with that. Um... I, that's one of those things, I mean, even though it was a mercy, in a way, it was a request, it's still, I mean, she's still a killer. It's, it's a, I don't know, I feel weird about that. Uh, Damien continues, I have seen people who read the intimacy of the fight between Storm and Callisto as a sign that they have a sexual relationship. Yup. <laughs> I prefer to see them as friends. A non-sexual reading actually adds to the poignancy as it's much harder to hurt a friend than to hurt an ex-lover. You really see Storm's mercy and grief in that scene. Lolly and Delgado really get the mood right. I agree. I agree. Um, 
the fact that Storm and Callisto are friends or have this respect for one another, um, they have this bond that it's it's even it's harder to put into words than to say that they are lovers. I mean, that's simple. That's all. That's almost simplifying it or oversimplifying it. They have a respect, a friendship, and a mutual admiration for one another. And I think that's why Callisto came to Storm to do her this um, kindness. And why Storm, despite not wanting to do it, ultimately came around to doing it here. Uh, I feel like any time... I mean, we talked about the, the Wolverine and Cyclops joke back in... Uh, I think it was actually the first Crucible issue, uh, X-Men number 7, where... You know, Scott in a Speedo, ooh, who could turn that down? And people just ran with that because, you know, people want to see what they want to see. And uh, I guess what gets the clicks gets the clicks. But I agree with Damien here. I, I like seeing Storm as and Callisto as peers, as friends, as, uh, as people who respect one another to the point where they would do things like this for each other, despite what it might do to them internally, what it might do to them, to their spirit, to their soul, if that's your thing, you know, um, they're still there to do this. Uh, They can still count on one another in that way. Damien continues, I should probably mention some of the other stuff this issue had, like building the anticipation for the Hellfire Gala and the Madripoor stuff, but for me it was all about Storm and Callisto. This issue succeeded in making the Crucible an emotional event, where it had previously been more of a philosophical question. Maybe this is because of my history with the X-Men and these particular characters, but I really think it's there in Duggan's story. He has an ability to get to the heart of the characters that make his work stand out against the the coolness of Hickman. I almost said coldness of Hickman, but uh, I think they both work. (laughs) In the X-Men Crucible issue, we were questioning why the characters were doing what they were doing, but here we have no doubt. We can still question the rights and wrongs of their actions, but everything is believable. Outstanding. And I think you put it into the perfect words right there, words that I was searching for and unable to to find. We can still question the rights and wrongs. I've mentioned just a couple moments ago, Storm killed somebody. Storm murdered somebody. We can still question the right and the wrong of that, but the story as written and the relationships involved and the history involved makes everything believable. It's, uh, you know, we talk about the, I mean, Damien mentions it right here, the heart of the characters here. And that is one of those intangibles that we talk about a lot on this program here. Which stories have heart, which stories maybe don't, Um, and Marauders. Uh, time in and time out It has tremendous heart It has tremendous heart These characters are believable The uh, the scenes feel lived in You know uh, Because hey you know A lot of us have lived through these scenes With these characters Like Damien said here We have a history with these characters And um, sometimes You know I, we talk about seeing patterns Where you want to see them Sometimes the patterns are just there Because we're so familiar So intimately familiar with these characters And uh Duggan is one of the handful of writers that respects and appreciates that and uh, celebrates it. He doesn't mock you for caring about the characters so much. Instead, he invites it. And it's, uh, and I mean, I'm projecting 100% here, but that's the feeling I get. And that's, uh, you know, that's, that's a good feeling to have about a book. Now, Damien wraps up with, anyway, until my arms get replaced by tentacles. 
make mine ex lapsed. And uh, if you don't want to know what that's a reference to, that is the awful <laughs> Chris Claremont Excalibur run where um, I believe it was like Professor X and Magneto went to the ruins of Genosha. And uh, we're like finding survivors who would somehow manage to, you know, survive there. And Callisto was either there or she just showed up there. And instead of having arms, she had tentacles. So it was unfortunate. It was not a pleasant look. But uh, thankfully, we are past that. <laughs> now, thank you so much for writing such a wonderful email about such a challenging, challenging issue here. And such a, uh, as you put it here, a very, you know, an intimate issue. So I really, really appreciate you writing in to share your thoughts about that, Damien. So thank you so much. Um, if anyone out there would like to share their thoughts about well, just about anything, feel free to reach out. You can find me pretty easily. I'm on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes and X-Lapsed Origins over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. For just the program, you could go to xlapse.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. It's a fairly easy way to navigate through all 160 episodes of the program and all of the Sunday specials. You can find us on Facebook. Chat us up there. 90s X-Men is our little group, having some fun conversations there right now. And for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can pop over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Available on all your noise aggregation thingamabobs. But uh, that will do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today. I really, really appreciate it. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.